0: Welcome to Well Read with Justin Chapman. This is the third episode of Well Read uh, broadcast by Rare Bird Lit. On the previous two episodes, I spoke with historian Matt Horman about his story on a mob of white racists who burned down Pasadena's Chinatown in 1885 in what is present-day Old Town Pasadena, and also with author and filmmaker Ellen Snortland about her lifelong advocacy of women's self-defense and the documentary she is making about the subject. Be sure to check out those two episodes as well because they're both incredible, interesting people. Today, I thought I'd talk about my book, a memoir about my travels across Africa. It's called Saturnalia, traveling from Cape Town to Kampala in search of an African utopia. And it was published by Rare Bird Books. I'll read the book description to get us started. Uh, In the spring of 2012, reporter and travel junkie Justin Chapman threw his cares to the wind and by himself set off on an epic journey across eight countries in Africa, from Cape Town, South Africa to Mediana, Uganda, by bus, train, and boat. Along the way, he narrowly escaped being locked away in a mental institution, visited an impoverished township that that was changing its future with the help of an art-based nonprofit, got into a life-threatening car crash, explored the mystical island of Zanzibar, lived with a group of Catholic priests, witnessed a witchcraft healing ceremony, discovered a pygmy opium den, and chased down riveting stories of a local journalist. He crossed cultural boundaries, found love and companionship in unusual places, and stared death with all its visceral stench and gore directly in the eyeballs. an engrossing cultural anthropological treatise like none other. By embarking on the journey of self-discovery and survival, Chapman explores what Africa really has to offer, And in the process, discover surprising and unexpected relationships between people and places. And here's what train spotting author, Irvin Welsh had to say about the book. The best and most arresting travel books are the ones that also take us on the author's inner journey. Justin Chapman's memoir is a perfect metaphor for contemporary American youth, painfully trying to work through its own baggage and openly and sincerely seeking to engage with the world beyond the USA's established physical and cultural borders. Don't miss this one. Um, You can check out SaturnaliaTheBook.com to learn even more about it. It's S-A-T-U-R-N-A-L-I-A, TheBook.com. This journey began for me back in late 2011, early 2012. I had written a couple articles for the Pasadena Weekly newspaper about an Altadena, California-based nonprofit called Art Aids Art. And basically what they do is they go to this impoverished township in Cape Town called Cayelichia, and they buy art from mostly women and then sell that art at home parties in California and then reinvest the profits back into the township community. And they've built a community center in Kailitsha that holds classes for the residents and, and they they help empower them to expand their businesses and reach new markets. Uh, they're really doing some remarkable work there. And uh, they, they travel over to Cape Town um, every year or every other year. And they invited me to go see them in action and i love traveling and always wanted to go to africa so i jumped at the chance and um, at the same time my mom knew a catholic priest from uganda uh, who visited her church in altadena every other year or so and asked if i could stay with him in in uganda and he said yes and um, south africa and uganda are some four thousand miles apart and i didn't want to just fly over africa i wanted to see africa so I decided to take buses and trains over three months, and it was the craziest thing I've ever done, and it changed my life dramatically. I did a lot of uh, research before I went, but I didn't exactly lay out where I was going or how I would need to get there before I left. When I arrived in Cape Town, I decided I would just spend as much time in these places as I liked then figure out where I wanted to go next and how to get there and so on, and, and like that, I created my path through Africa as I went. I also wrote about my experiences as they happened in a gonzo journalism-esque attempt. The, the internet is uh, notoriously shitty in Africa, but whenever I could get online, I would post my writings and photos to my blog. And then about a year after I turn, returned home to the States, um, I began the difficult process of turning that blog into an actual book. Uh, and a blog and a book are two very different things, so it was uh, a lot of work. And then um, the author, Jerry Stahl, who wrote Permanent Midnight, introduced me to one of his publishers, Tyson Cornell at Rarebird, who liked the book and decided to publish it. And uh, that day was um, one of the greatest moments of my life because publishing a book was a lifelong dream of mine. And here I was actually accomplishing it before I turned 30. And so I'm eternally grateful to Tyson and Rarebird for that. Um, and so, as the uh, book description I read earlier says, Um, I had um, quite a few crazy adventures along the way in Africa, and those were just some of of the highlights. Um, One one thing it doesn't mention, and this is one of the main reasons I went to Africa in the first place, was that I was trying to get away from drugs, and um, I'm going to read an excerpt from my book, and as the title of the chapter suggests, I, I learned the hard way that you can go anywhere in the world, but you can't get away from yourself. It's called A Riptide Relapse in a Pygmy Opium Den. And uh, to give you a little context, at this point in the book, I was traveling with a Ugandan journalist, who I call Noah, in the, to help him uh, cover stories. And we were taking buses across Uganda and down into Rwanda. And uh, when we came back up, we traveled along the border of Uganda and the Democratic Republic of the Congo, where we visited the Batwa Pygmy tribe. So I'll go ahead and read this excerpt now. <clears throat> Parts of the main highway, a bumpy dirt road, to Semuliki National Park in western Uganda were even worse than the roads in Chigali, which is saying quite a lot. It was the second leg of Noah's and my trip. We had to take several long tiring buses and minibuses to different small towns, past the windy impenetrable forest, and along the Renzori mountain border between Uganda and the Democratic Republic of the Congo to get there. But we were glad to be out of Rwanda. At one point, a bus driver forgot to drop us off in the town we needed to be in to catch our next bus, and we ended up at the Democratic Republic of the Congo border at 4.30 a.m. We were running on empty, just a couple hours sleep and very little food after a two-day journey, and it was starting to wear on us. Our trip was only half over. Another bus finally showed up and we made it to Fort Portal, a small town that served as a regional transportation hub and the last main stop before our final destination. We grabbed down and caught a minibus towards Sempaya Gate, the entrance to Semuliki National Park. We still had a bit of a drive to reach the town where the Batwa pygmies lived. I remembered reading about pygmies in a cultural anthropology class in college. When I had an opportunity to meet them, I jumped at the chance. All I knew about them was that they were hunters and gatherers. They lived in the forest and they were very short people. The view on the way was beautiful huge rolling green hills split down the middle by a deep gorge and sprawling valley. But the road was terrible, winding bumps every 20 feet, some parts partially paved and we had to make several stops for Chinese and African workers using dump trucks and caterpillars to try to repair the shitty road. It felt like the end of the earth. From the gate, we had to take a boda boda, a motorcycle taxi to the nearby town of Natandi surrounded on all sides by hills and jungle and the bush. The main town looked like an African version of the American old West One long, wide road with one-story buildings on either side that looked like saloons and sheriff outposts. This place had a bad vibe to it. We did not feel safe. We were led out of town by a local down dirt paths and small huts to the Batwa Pygmy Village, a small place with small people. We were greeted warmly. They lived off visitors like us, and they only received about 10 visitors a month at the most. We, We met the Mabuo, or King, the smallest of them all, who was 40 years old. Everyone was smoking cigarettes and pipes, indoors and out. There were about 30 pygmies there, mothers holding babies, naked kids playing in the dirt next to empty gas and alcohol canisters, black and white goats meandering about, and shirtless, hairy-chested men building fires. Their village was a clearing carved out of the jungle. Their houses were mud huts and straw tents. They didn't, they didn't seem surprised to see a mazungu or white person, which surprised me. They were short, for sure, but there were also non-pygmies present. The actual pygmies were about half my size. I'm five six, not tall by any stretch of the imagination and I towered over them. They looked like they should have been kids but their faces were old and compressed. They looked like black Benjamin buttons. The pygmy's face, uh, the, the pygmy king's name was Nizito Jofuli, and he was wearing a tattered red shirt that read every every day, every way. His crown was a small yamaka like hat with dozens of long colorful feathers shooting up every which way into the sky. He had one wife who was taller than me and definitely not a pygmy and four children three sons and one daughter the king and several pygmies and children led us into the king's home a mud house that the european union gave them money to build in order for us to explain the intention of our visit it was hot and we were all sweating we sat down on the dirt floor in a small empty room old cracked paint was peeling off the walls they were all carrying small wooden stringed instruments like mini and colorful pipes that presumably they wanted us to buy. They also had a fee for anyone visiting their village, so we negotiated a price. Their local language was Luxwa, though they knew some other languages spoken in the Congo. So the speaker, a 25-year-old pygmy named Julius Baliburia, who had two wives and four sons, had to translate for us because he was the only one who also spoke Luganda, the language of Uganda, and English. The other pygmies, he told us, were half the size of the ones we saw. The reason for their growth in size was because they had begun intermarrying with regular-sized Africans after many women died in the forest called Maoyo in the Congo, where they were hunters and gatherers. Once the animals they hunted were gone, they resettled in Semuliki in 2007 and became Ugandan citizens. They began hunting animals in the park until the game rangers and the Ugandan government stopped them, allowing them to only fish and hunt monkeys. This forced them to begin cultivating the land, but they said they didn't have enough land to sustain themselves. They arrived here with a population of about 200, which was reduced to 86 and had since gone back up to 116. Though Julius said their numbers were dwindling and we only saw about 40 people in the pygmy camp at any given time. He told us the rest were in the forest hunting and would be back the next morning. They had relatives in the Congo and once a year they crossed Lake Semuliki by boat. When a married couple has a a daughter, They all travel to the Congo to exchange the baby girl with a Congolese relative's daughter. If one or the other does not have a girl to exchange, they get seven dogs instead, which help them to hunt for food. Noah asked them if they ever felt discriminated against. Julius said that sometimes they did, but never for their size, only their supposed laziness. At school, their children were called smelly because they used to live in the forest and didn't bathe, though they said they did now. They needed more help from the government. They had written to government officials many times but received no response. They needed more land to cultivate. They needed more money to build better homes and they needed better healthcare. The hospitals were too far away. They either needed a hospital nearby or they needed funds for transportation. They used to take herbs from the national park but the Game Rangers said they were destroying the nature and building them use the hospitals which they couldn't get to. Besides smoking tobacco, they also smoked marijuana to give them courage to go hunting, they said and, unfortunately for me, opium, both of which they grew in a secret location in the bush. As soon as he said opium, I knew I wanted to try it. Will you take me to the marijuana and opium fields? I asked Julius. I wanted to see how big they were and if pygmies were working the fields. Okay, he said. Justin, if you go there, you will be attacked and killed, Noah warned me. They're not just going to let some stranger see their drug fields and get away. Noah didn't approve of the use of drugs, but he knew he couldn't stop me from making my own decisions. I decided to follow his advice and not pursue visiting the actual fields. Julius did show me a few marijuana plants he was growing be- behind his house, though. Instead, I just smoked weed with Julius and the king in a small room in Julius's house. Noah watched but didn't partake and didn't say anything. Once the small dank room started filling up with smoke, he went outside to take photos of the village and the people. The king then brought out his long wooden hand-paint- hand-painted pipe and offered me opium. I was in some alternate universe. I had traveled halfway around the world to escape my heroin addiction and yet here was a three-foot 40-year-old bald fucking pygmy king with a feather crown handing me a handmade pipe packed with opium in the middle of the jungle. At the time, I didn't consider it a relapse because I didn't consider opium to be as hard or as serious as heroin, even though heroin is refined from raw opium. I figured I'm not sticking a needle in my arm and injecting the poppy resin straight into my bloodstream, so what's the big deal? The truth is, I just didn't think about it that much. I just did it. Julius loaded the pipe with the substance and then put hot coals on top instead of using a lighter or matches. As I sucked the opiate smoke deep into my lungs, I reflected on the strange, enchanting fact that I had stumbled upon a pygmy opium den. The high was crap. I barely felt anything. I expected opium grown in the jungle like this to be particularly potent, but I just felt really stoned. It left me wanting something more. I inquired about law enforcement. The police tried to destroy our opium fields, but they let us grow marijuana, Julius told me. But the police do not enter our camp, so do not worry. What if someone within the camp were to steal or hurt someone else, I asked, taking another hit, holding this one in longer? They would be punished by the king. What would be their punishment? Death. So there was a sort of internal law enforcement in place there. But usually there are no incidents, he added. We are a peaceful people. Outside, the pygmies danced and sang for us, but it was quite pathetic and disappointing disappointing. They just kind of half-heartedly moved around in a circle and made random noises. The whole affair cost us 100,000 Ugandan shillings. Actually, it cost me that much. No, it didn't pay for anything the entire four-day trip. I bought the pipe from the king as well as one of the small instruments, a sort of pygmy harp. If there are marijuana and opium fields here, that means there's heroin here, which is not good. I was clearly still lying to myself and had it admitted that I had just violated my recovery by smoking opium. I suppose I thought about it for a moment, but then I thought, well, the opium I smoked wasn't that good, so it's not really relapsing. I mean, I didn't get that high from it. Of course, the truth was that it only made me want the real thing. If there was heroin nearby, that also meant the main town, which is populated with non-pygmies, was filled with junkies, making it a dangerous place to be. It also meant the town was a drug trading post, a smuggling stop along the way from the Congo to Uganda and other East African countries. I had to get out of there. In town, Noah and I discussed our options over dinner, which was bland local food. All the restaurants were were run by Muslims, so we couldn't get a beer. And the walls were plastered with posters praising Muammar Gaddafi, Saddam Hussein, and Osama bin Laden, next to a Coca-Cola advertisement with two smiling Africans that read, loaded with happiness. We were nervous about sleeping in town. After all, we were surrounded by Bush in in a dangerous drug town, far away from any official help. If we were attacked, we'd be fucked. It was a long way out of there after after weighing our options, we decided to stay the night in a shabby back alley motel and to keep our wits about us. We were very tired. So after a couple beers that we found from a local store, we fit, we hit the sack in our separate rooms. I kept my Maasai club next to my mattress. In the morning, Julius came to fetch us. He had promised the rest of the pygmies would be back from their hunting trip at the camp. But when we arrived, there were even fewer people than the day before. Let's go, Justin, Noah said. These people played us. So uh, you can go out and, and check out the book uh, at SaturnaliaTheBook.com. Saturnalia, uh, thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Well Read. I'm your host, Justin Chapman. And uh, next, uh, next episode, we'll speak with Brett Shears of Vote Allies. It's a project where um, uh, people will partner with um uh, uh, ex-felons um immigrants and others who are not legally allowed to vote and pledge to vote in their place so to give up their vote and um and let the uh, the people who are not allowed to vote legally um decide who they're going to vote for um so thanks again for joining us and remember a, li- a life well read is a life well spent